when I open my mouth and start talking, I'm selling. And so if they like what I have to say and I give them good content, they're going to want more of what I have. And if they don't like it, they're going to go someplace else. If I do an event, I know I did one with Harv Ecker many years ago and, and the coordinator of that event, he said, you have, you have 90 minutes. And he says, and don't spend more than 30 minutes on your pitch. And I said, well, I'm not going to spend more than one or two minutes on that. And he said, well, good luck with that. And I went literally for about 87 minutes. And I said, here's, here's what I got to offer. It's in the back of the room. And, and it was like everybody rushed to the back tables. Afterwards, I'd outsold any three speakers that he had, 14 speakers, all co collectively. He said, I don't believe what I just saw. He said, you didn't, you didn't even sell. You didn't do a pitch. And I said, yeah, I did. And he said, well, I didn't see it. And I said, it's when I started. Welcome to Pivot Me where we give business tips and mental hacks so you can move past your biggest obstacles and live the life you've earned. And now your host, business advisor and performance expert, April Garcia. For years, I made large companies larger and rich people richer. Now I coach driven entrepreneurs to hack success, create more time and get better results through high performance habits, the multiply me method, and a little mental gymnastics. On Pivot Me, I talk to thought leaders and experts sharing our successes, our many scrubs, and how we can all use both to move us to the next level. Join us and learn real simple steps to pivot you and your business towards the life you've earned. He begins at six years old as a cotton picker in the South. He later drops out of school, works at a gas station, and eventually moves up to a factory job, his dream job. His life was completely laid out for him. Then he took a left-hand turn. A conversation, an opportunity arose one night after his shift, and my guest today, he took it. And then he fell pretty darn hard. You will hear the story, the rise, the fall, and rise again of Jim Britt. He is an award-winning author of 15 best-selling books and six number one international bestsellers. Some of his many titles include Rings of Truth, Do This, Get Rich for Entrepreneurs, The Power of Letting Go, Cracking the Rich Code, and The Entrepreneur. He is a sought-after keynote, and as an entrepreneur, Jim has launched 28 successful business ventures. He has served as a success strategist to over 300 corporations worldwide and was recently named as one of the world's top 50 speakers. This guy has done it all. In fact, early in his speaking career, he was a business partner with the late Jim Rohn for eight years where none other than Tony Robbins worked under Jim for his first few years of speaking. Jim is now working with Kevin Harrington from the TV show Shark Tank on a collaborative book series in PR, marketing, branding, and lead gen strategy for coaches, speakers, and entrepreneurs. But today, Jim is going to share his story and also the work that we all need to do really to get out of our own way. He will share what he discovered after interviewing the most successful self-made millionaires and the traits he saw in all of them. You're going to want to grab a pen and a paper for that part, but don't worry. If you don't have some of the traits, they're all ones that can easily be developed. We'll show you how today. Let's get into it. Thank you so much, Jim, for joining us on Pivot Me today. Hey, my pleasure, April. Great to be here. 
Yes, we are excited to get into it. So I know that you've got so much value to add to the pivoters, but before we begin on the strategies and the tips and the things that you've learned through the years, I would love us to go back and talk about how it all began. So we were talking offline about, you know, your family moving around a lot and picking cotton together, and then that evolved into eventually working in a gas station. But can you quickly walk us through sort of where it all began, and then we'll catch up to where we are today? Well, uh, first of all, I love the pivot idea because I've had to pivot many times in my life. So yeah, I understand what people go through when they have to pivot and things change like they have changed recently even. So, but looking back on my life, sometimes it's almost unbelievable to me that I started where I did and ended up where I am because I never planned it. It just kind of evolved into what I'm doing. But, you know, my first job actually was picking cotton. And I was six years old and probably my parents would maybe get arrested for child abuse today if they did that. But, you know, we, the whole family did. We had to because we had to eat and we had to buy school clothes and that type of thing. So what I gained from that, though, looking back on it is it was really, really hard work. I mean, backbreaking work, even at six years old. And and I did that up until I was about 12. But I learned that hard, just hard work alone, working with your two hands. Now, some people love doing that, but it's not going to get you ahead financially. It'll maybe give you a job and make a living, but I wanted more than that. And I didn't know what I wanted at six and 12 years old. And then about halfway through the 10th grade, I dropped out of high school and I was not a good student at all. And I went to work in a gas station. I got married at 18. I had my first child at 19, worked in that gas station for about two years. And I made a dollar an hour and I worked 60 hours a week, no overtime. So I took home $52 and 10 cents a week. And and I lived on that. You know, it was, you know, it was way back. My dream job was working in a factory on the assembly line, but I didn't have a high school diploma. And just by chance, a fellow that had been into the gas station many times getting gas, we struck up a conversation. I found out he was a supervisor at the factory. And long story short, he said, look, if you can pass a test, I'll get you by that high school diploma and we'll you can go to work in the factory. So I did. And there were 9,000 employees. And within six months, I was rated number one employee in the whole factory. Out of 9,000. Yeah. And (laughs) you uh, might've made some enemies there, Jim, when you did that. (laughs) No, we all had, we all got uh, efficiency ratings. So they gave you a certain job to do. I wired telephone switchboards and they'd give you a certain job to do in a certain amount of time to do it. So if you did it in half the time, then your efficiency was 200%. But my best month was 457%. So I did the job of 4.57 people. So they loved me. And and, and other people were involved in kind of a little bonus pool and things that we had. And they loved it too, because it added to their bonus, because we're kind of all collectively in that. So anyway, my life changed one night. I was working a swing shift. I got off at midnight. A fellow walked by my area that I actually had met a couple of times, didn't really know him that well. And he stopped and he said, hey, hey, Brett, he said, you're going to work in this factory the rest of your life? I'm going, I don't know, maybe. And he said, come go to this meeting with me tomorrow night. It's your night off, right? I said, yeah. And I said, what kind of meeting? And he said, well, I think it's something we could do to make some extra money. I said, well, what is it? He said, I don't know. They just told me to bring somebody with me. I said, well, I'm not your guy. I'm not going to go to some meeting. I don't know what it's about. And he said, come on, man. He said, I need to take somebody with me. He said, I tell you what, if you go, I'll buy the beer afterwards. 
I said, well, what time is that meeting? (laughs) (laughs) I went for the beer, not the meeting. But little did I know it was going to change my life. And without getting into all the details, I uh, went to the meeting. A light went on in my head and I said, I can do this. Not only am I going to do it, I'm going to get rich doing it. Not even what rich was, probably two bucks an hour to me back then, but I wanted to get rich. And I saw an opportunity to really get ahead financially there. And they gave me my first tra- only training, actually. He said, your job is talking to people. If you talk a little, you'll learn a little. If you talk a lot, you'll learn a lot. And I said, well, how much is a lot? He said, 10 a day. I said, that's what I'll do. And of course, we didn't have internet or anything like that. So I had to physically go out and meet 10 people a day. And I did for the next year. 3,650 plus people. And I had that many people that told me no. And at the end of that year, I had lost everything I owned, my home, my cars, my furniture, everything. I'm standing in my kitchen, looking out the window. I got a wife and a child. And I look to one side and I see the note on my, on the front door. And it was from the sheriff. And it says, you have to be out in five days by order of the sheriff. Because my home had been foreclosed. I had no place to go. I looked to the left, my driveway, where I used to have two vehicles. Both of those are gone. They've been repoed. And I reach in my pocket and I have 15 cents. And that was all the money I had to my name. At 15 cents, five days, I had to be out. Wife and a child, no place to go. And I wouldn't quit. My dad showed up, actually, and he said, what are you doing? He said, you, you, you could go back to the factory. They'll hire you back. And I said, Dad, I can't. He said, what do you mean you can't? And I said, I can't go back. I just can't quit. And I didn't know what I was going to do. And the next life-changing moment for me that really took me off in an incredible direction was a fellow knocked on my door that same day from the company that I was working with. And he spent two hours with me sitting in my floor because we had no furniture. And he taught me what I was doing wrong and what I needed to be doing. So real quick. So did he know that you were in this position, that you were at this huge crossroads of... Oh, I, t- I told him. Okay. And he said, tell me where you are. Yeah, I understand you're a hard worker and you're making no money. And he said, tell me what you do and what you're doing and all this stuff. And so I filled him in on everything, including my foreclosure that he saw on the note, note on the door anyway. And so he taught me a, th- a couple of things and my business took off like a rocket. <laughs> and and within, within five days, and we won't have time to go into all the detail, but within five days, my business took off. I had a vehicle to drive. I had a three-bedroom furnished apartment. I had $300 a week coming in and a second opportunity presented to me. So all of it happened within five days. So did he orchestrate some of this or was it the advice that he provided you were able to make this huge, sharp pivot? It was only the, the advice he gave me for the business. Uh, my, my next month that I was going into, I made $2,600. And the one after that, I made 6000 It just kept going up. Wow. And within a year, I had earned my first million dollars. So from being dead broke, a year of failure, to earning my first million in my second year. Wow. And what he taught me, and, I, and probably would be valuable here, he asked me first, he said, how do you know if you have a viable prospect? And I said, I don't know. I guess if they buy from you. And he said, no. He said, how do you know if there's even a potential to buy from you? I said, I have no clue. He said, well, obviously. 
evidenced, <laughs> as evidenced by your numbers. Yeah. He said, in order to have a, a viable prospect, you have to arrive at three destinations. And I said, what, what does that mean? He said, well, first of all, do they have a pain or a problem? Secondly, do they want to solve it? And third, can you solve it? He said, so you got to find out if they have a pain or a problem to start. And I go, well, how do you find out that? And he said, well, it's not out there flapping your jaws like you've been doing for the last year. He said, you got to ask questions and listen. I said, what kind of questions? He said, it doesn't matter. I'm going, really? <laughs> I said, I'm confused. He said, no, it doesn't matter. He said, you want to start a conversation. You're having coffee and a guy sits down next to you. You say, do you work around here or something? Get us get into a conversation with people. You're at a party. You know, what brings you here? Who do you know? Wherever you meet people on an airplane, where you headed today. So he said, you just get into conversation. He said, they'll share their pain and problem with you. Just get curious. You Mm -hmm. truly are listening. And he said, if you'll live your life this way, he said, I'm going to give you a tip here. And, And I've done this. I've lived my life this way since that day. He said, every time you meet somebody, no matter whether it's about business or you're on an airplane or at a party, it doesn't matter. You meet somebody new, always be thinking, what can I do to help this person? And he said, if you're always thinking that, he said, you'll never be without friends, without money. And he said, you'll build a network worldwide one day. This was the same guy that was at your house that sat on the floor for two hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Jim, what I'm hearing is that ultimately it was a mentor that came in and that was the catalyst for the, the change. One time, never saw him since. Never saw. So fascinating. The timing of that is amazing. You know, it's interesting. I want to go back to a, a original point. So the, the first person who trained you said, if you talk, if you talk a little bit, you'll learn a little, if you talk a lot more, you'll learn a lot more. I, I might be paraphrasing there. I wonder how different the results would have been if he would have said, if you listen a little, you'll learn. If you listen more, you'll learn more. Just a trick in sales. We got to listen. But so Jim, I, I want, I want to talk about what happened after that, but I'm, I'm imagining this day in your house. I'm imagining the, the furniture's gone, the cars are gone, the sign on the door, wife and baby there. Your dad came and pushed you towards the factory, obviously. But I mean, what Who's your, what were the people around you saying? I mean, your wife and I mean, you had to be under intense pressure to just go back to the safe, secure factory job. Yeah. My, my wife was, was very stressful because, you know, uh, she wanted security and I wasn't providing that. It was about to lose even the roof over our heads. And, you know, family was always looking at me like, what are you doing? You know, this this is ridiculous. You're never going to make it. You're not going to be successful. All the people I worked with in the factory that were my friends, that uh, actually the only friends I had, you know, I didn't, didn't work outside there or meet hardly anybody other than family. They all kind of put me down and said, you know, they laughed at you. Oh, Britt's going to be a millionaire. Yeah. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> so it, it, I, I don't know. I, maybe I'd. Part of it, I think, drove me to show people that I could do it was one thing, but I, but I think it, I was inspired to do more, more with my life than wire telephone switchboards. I just didn't want to continue doing it. I didn't see a future. So I think I stuck with it out of desperation and inspiration. I was desperate to find something different, and I, and I didn't see anything else other than that. And, and I was inspired to change my life. And I got exposed there in that company to some of the best training ever. I mean, it, it was so 
mind stretching for me to hear personal development. And, you know, I remember a guy gave me a, he gave me the book Psycho-Cybernetics by Dr. Maxwell Maltz. And I'd never read a book like that or even seen one. I opened it up and I was just kind of starting and I read the first page or two. And I said, I'll never forget it. I said, what a bunch of crap. And I threw it in trash across the kitchen. And about, let's see, in 1981, I think it was, myself and a partner owned the seminar rights to Psycho-Cybernetics and Thinking Grow Rich. <laughs> it all came full circle, huh? And I read the book 30 times in 30 days. So I got really? to know Really? Yeah, very well. So, and taught classes on it and taught other people to teach classes on it. So it was... So what changed between the version of Jim that throws it in the trash and the version of Jim that reads it 30 times in 30 days? Well, I, you know, I'd just never been exposed to anything like that. And I thought, what's self-image and what's uh, self-esteem? And I, I didn't know it. I mean, I'd never heard anything like that before. So I just thought, I don't understand this. I'm a 10th grade dropout. So uh, they were writing above my pay grade, I guess. I don't know. Sure. So, okay. So we become successful in this business and, and, in, and in this business, you're saying you were exposed to all sorts of amazing training and is, and that's where you got introduced to personal development as well. Um, what happens after that? So you've had a level of success that you never thought was possible. You kind of defied your peer groups. My guess is lineage to first generation entrepreneur, I would assume yeah. you broke all the barriers along the way. Then what happens? Well, in that, that direct sales company, I met Jim Rohn, and Jim was the a trainer for that company, uh, virtually unknown, except within that company. And I remember, never forget, sitting in the room with his first three-hour seminar, I took 16 pages of notes, and then I started following him around. I lived in Oklahoma at the time, then I went to Arkansas, and I went to Texas, and I went to Kansas, and I went to Colorado. Just to hear him he speak? Was, I would go wherever he's speaking in the company. I would go there within about a five or six state region. And one day he goes, where do you live anyway? <laughs> wherever you <laughs> do, taking, pal. <laughs> taking the same 16 pages of notes every time I'd go. And we became best of friends. And, and then that company went out of business about two years later. And Jim moved to another. Uh, I, I didn't know where he moved to, actually. We both moved. I moved to Arizona. I moved to another part in Oklahoma right before that. And then I was going to build a, a, a warehouse building in Arizona. So I went to Arizona uh, and, and Jim and I had lost contact completely. We had no phone numbers, nothing. So I go to Arizona and I'm looking at some property and I walk into uh, a restaurant one morning to have breakfast. And there sat Jim Rohn. <laughs> I'm going, Wow. I said, what's the well, chances? What brings you here? And he said, well, I live in San Jose now. And he said, I came here to look at some property because I'm going to build a couple of houses. I'm going, well, I'm going to build a warehouse. <laughs> so we got to talking and, and he said, well, why not? Why don't uh, we start a business? Join me in business. Let's start a seminar production company. And I said, well, I don't, I don't know what that looks like. I've never done that. And he said, well, you promote me and I'll do the seminars. And so it had just evolved from there. And gosh, we, we had... I don't, we had, we probably had months of 20,000 people going through our events, wow. um, maybe more in some months. Uh, Jim was so busy. And then I started doing workshops and things as follow-up. And that's how I phased into the speaking business. But yeah, Jim and I were partners for about eight years. Started a seminar business. Mm -hmm. And you guys both found yourself in a diner in Arizona unexpectedly. 
So I, I want to ask how that evolved, but one thing I've got to comment on Jim is that I'm noticing this theme, like you working in the factory and then an opportunity is presented and you go all in on this opportunity. You don't, you don't go halfway. You don't say, I'm going to work at nights and weekends and work to the factory during the day. Then you meet Jim Rohn and you go, I could learn something from this guy. I'm going to take 16 pages of notes and then I'm going to follow him around state by state just to hear what he has to say. I'm seeing this trend of like, you go all in. Is that, is that a trend throughout your life? Yes. And it has been ever since I was with Jim because I love this business and I love helping people and I love seeing the results that it gets for people. And, you know, I've developed some pretty interesting concepts and techniques that nobody else is doing that help people to get rid of the the blocks that actually stop their success in any area of their life. It doesn't matter whether it's money or relationships or losing weight or relate, whatever it might be. People have, they have mental blocks that, that stop them. They don't need motivation. They don't need positive thinking. They don't need the law of attraction. They need to stop and look inside and discover what it is that's holding them back. And we all have it. And I'll, I'll give you an example. Yes, like. please. Let's do I was just about to ask you, can you give us an example, Jim? Okay. Well, about two weeks ago, I was coaching this fellow, just started, first session. And I said, tell me, tell me why you need coaching. And he was an entrepreneur, said he was. And he said, well, I've started nine businesses and all of them have failed. I said, so what caused them to fail? He said, well, I had a business partner in all nine of them. And it was the business partner. I said, in every one of them? He said, yep. I said, well, what did they do? And he said, I don't know. Some of them screwed me over for money. Others took money that didn't belong to them. Others didn't show up and do their part of the the job. And I ended up having to do everything. He said, and they all failed. I said, wow, that's unfortunate. And I said, tell me about your childhood. He said, what about my childhood? What does that have to do with my business? I said, I don't know, maybe nothing. He said, no, I don't think that has has anything to do with my business. I said, come on, where were you at four and five years old? He said, well, quite frankly, he said, I got abandoned as a child at five years old. And I said, well, do you see any correlation between that and your business? He said, no. (laughs) And I said, well, yeah, back when you got abandoned, you wanted somebody with you, right? You felt alone. So you started nine businesses and you didn't want to feel alone So you took on nine partners and they all abandoned you just like you got abandoned as a child. And I said, you're just repeating the pattern over and over and over. I said, you're hoping that that's going to help the way you feel or the way you felt as a child that you've carried with you for the rest, for the remainder of your life until now. And I said, you see a correlation? And he went silent for about 60 seconds and finally came back and he said, oh my God. He said, I would never, ever have considered that. He says, I'll tell you right, right now, he said, I've already got my money's worth. It's powerful. (laughs) So powerful. You know, it's it's understanding that that we have these mental blocks. Like the woman in one of my classes, she said, I could, I can never be successful financially because of my father. And I said, what about your father? She said, well, he verbally abused me from childhood on up until I left home. I said, how did he abuse you? She said, he just told me I'd never amount to anything. I'd never measure up to my siblings. You're not going to ever be successful. And I said, so he's the reason you can't be successful. 
Yep. I said, where, where is he now? She said, well, he died 10 years ago. I said, well, who's abusing you now? She said, I don't understand that question. I said, well, he's not here. Who's abusing you? She said, I don't understand. I said, well, think about it. I came back again about 15 minutes to her and said, did you come up with the answer? No. It took five times me coming back. And finally she goes, you mean I'm abusing me? I'm going, what do you think? I don't know. I said, well, keep thinking. <laughs> came back the last time. She says, oh, my God, I'd never even considered. She said, I'm carrying on his legacy. I'm carrying on what he did to me. I'm doing it to myself. She said, well, how come I can't see that? You know, and that's the problem. We can't see what we what we need to change most of the time. Sometimes we do. But a lot of times we don't. And maybe you can see it in others, but it's hard to see it in ourselves. So that's what I do, basically, is to help people, you know, discover what it is that's stopping them. And, and that way, if they if they act upon that, now it's a conscious choice that they do it. Yeah, it's a decision versus just programming. And then I show them how to break the cycle. I don't care if it's abuse that they're going through physically or lack of money or whatever it is, there's a block that stops them because there's plenty of money out there, plenty of opportunities for success. It's just that we, we have mental blocks. We don't see it. Sure. And that's the power of coaching. That's the power of reading these kinds of books and going to seminars. I'm a fan of all of the above. It's because it highlights what our programming is. And then it makes it a choice. If we don't know it's a choice, we just think, oh, well, this is, my father was this person. So I behave this way about money. I had this terrible experience. So this is why I do this particular behavior. We rarely use that for the power of good. We're like, oh, this will excuse my poor performance, my bad behavior. But when we recognize that that's a choice, that we can choose a different story, choose a different narrative, and we can have a completely different life. Then we take the power back. In that scenario with the gal, she's given her dead father all the power over her financial stability. And I think that's that's a piece that a lot of us are missing unless we go down either the personal development road or journaling. There's lots of ways that it can be done, but that we've given our power away to so many other people. And sometimes it's to narratives that were handed to us when we were kids or teenagers. And we're like, well, I'm just repeating this narrative that at any point we can choose differently. Yeah. I mean, a salesperson, for example, they go into a, an office to make a sales presentation. And let's say they do two or three in a row and they get two or three no's in a row. Well, the next one they go into, they're not going into it with a clear mind. They're going into it, looking through those rose colored glasses of the past three presentations they just made, most likely even anticipating getting another no or hoping they don't, but they still do because they're, they don't realize that you've got to, you've got to let go and, and, and cut the tie. It's like fear. It's only real. If you make it real, it's a made up story. Somebody asked me the other day, they said, well, what if the, what if you got a, a bear or a lion chasing you through the woods? Isn't that real fear? I said, no, you're making it up. I said, he hasn't caught you yet. So you're making up in your mind what's going to happen if he catches you. I said, but I'd probably run too. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but, but, you know, how about making up something more empowering? It's just changing our focus. I learned over years, I, I, I interviewed 12 mega millionaires a few years back, one billionaire, and everybody, all 12 of them had to start with nothing, and they had to have earned at least $200 million. Okay. 
So self-made. Okay. Yeah. Now all in different industries. It's all self-made. So I interviewed all these people. And after about the third interview, I'm thinking, you know, they say it in a different way, but they have, they have about five to six traits in common. And, and I started looking at myself and I thought, well, do I have those traits? And I thought, that's what drives me. That's what inspires me to keep going. Sure. Let's talk about some of them. Yeah. One is, I mean, they're, they're simple, but yet if you don't understand them and, and the concept behind them, uh, you can get stuck and, and it can throw you off course. So one is a, is a desire to become more, you know, whether it's having more or, you know, becoming financially free or whatever, a desire to become a better person in some way. But Let's just take money, for example, because most of the people listening here are entrepreneurs. So you could go out on the street corner anywhere in, in, in any country and probably in the world and ask a thousand people if they'd like to make more money. And everybody would say yes. Even the person already making a million a year is looking to make two million a year. So they have the desire. But how many really do? The reality is that most of us spend about 80 percent of our waking hours going after money you know, average working person, whether they have a job or entrepreneur or whatever. But the reality is that 90% of those people don't have enough. So they're spending 80% of their waking hours and they don't have enough. That's sad if, if, if you ask me. So, but desire is not enough. So you got to take it to the next step and that's called decision-making. And where people go wrong there, a couple of things. One is, let's just say this circle here is a, a firm decision. Like I made when I said in that meeting that night, I'm going to be successful at this. and I'm going to get rich. And you quit the factory. Yeah, I quit the next day. Gotcha. Okay. I didn't invest four. I didn't tell you I didn't invest four thousand dollars and I only had nine (laughs) dollars. Nobody I knew had money. I went to 23 banks and loan companies for before I found one that would loan me the money. Do you had unwavering faith? Was it unwavering faith in yourself or in the system they presented? Probably more of the system, but I had determination. I had tenacity. I just sure. I wouldn't give up. And I didn't know what I was going to do. It was the last one on the list that, that I could find that, that loaned money. The last bank. So you had a circle and you gave yourself no way out. So the, the circle is a full decision, but most people leave just a little opening in that circle. And that's their escape route. Uh, that's their excuse as to why it wouldn't work. Backup plan? Is it the kind of that as well? Backup plan of how okay. I can back out mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> and, and, and save face, just in case it doesn't work. Um, so that decision has to be a decision that doesn't allow for anything less. And if you want to be, let's say you want to make a million dollars, you want to be a millionaire or 10 millionaire, whatever, I don't I don't even know today how much, what, you know, if a million's enough money for anybody. Sure. <laughs> but let's say you want to be a millionaire. Do you go look for the opportunity before you decide or do you decide first? And the answer is you decide first. It's like people say, well, when I become a millionaire, I'll feel like one. No, as soon as you feel like one, you'll become one. Uh, that's, that's a fact. Because what happens when you make a firm decision, it changes your mindset. And a mindset determines how you show up to the world, and it determines how the world shows up for you, to support you. And it determines what you see in the world. 
if you don't need to make a million dollars this year, you're not going to see opportunities. Why would you even look for them? But if you're determined to make a million dollars, opportunities are everywhere and they'll come to you. So you were determined before that person came, that opportunity, when you went and saw that business present, you were already determined at that point to be rich, which is why you jumped on this opportunity. You'd made the decision long before then. And I learned a lot of that as I went through too. And looking back, you know, that year in my life where I lost everything, one of the best years of my life. I mean, not then, but now looking back on it. Sure. And, you know, people say, well, how do you handle rejection? I'm going, I already did that. <laughs> 3,650 times. How many people have you been rejected by? You know, so you learn that it's it's not about the people. It's 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 just... It just is what it is. Some people will buy, some people won't, you know, it's just what it is. So you got to, you have to have that firm decision. I don't care if you want to lose weight or make money or have a better relationship or whatever it is, that decision determines how you show up and how the world sees you. You want to go out and raise capital? You better have that confidence and that mindset for somebody because they're going to invest in you, not your product. For sure. And people can perceive that. So, okay. So desire was first, but we know desire is not enough. We heard, you know, this firm decision-making be all in. What are some of the other traits that you noticed? The the third one is you have to take action. Take action. Okay. And a a good entrepreneur, you can (laughs) overanalyze and a lot of people do. And, but a good entrepreneur doesn't overanalyze. They make a decision, they shoot from the hip and they take whatever actions they can take now while in the process of setting things up. Instead of, well, I'm going to set everything up and get it perfect. Well, you'll never get it perfect. Perfect is an illusion. It's funny because just a week or two ago, one of my clients had asked me, what's the theme I noticed in all high performers, people that have been very, very successful in their business or even their corporate career, but what was the theme? And I said, I knew it right away, speed of execution. Yeah. And I'm just thinking this is exactly what you're talking about is they don't wait for all the data points to be clear. 80% is good enough because perfect is just an illusion. We never get there, but we can die trying. So I love that this is your third point. That's the third. And then the fourth point is you have to be bold. In today's world, you're going to have to put yourself in the spotlight because the spotlight's not going to come and find you. So <laughs> you know, opportunity your... doesn't just knock <laughs> and you just you just sit on the couch waiting for it to show up. Yeah. And you gotta you gotta show up as, with confidence and show up as a key person of influence in your field of business. Even if you're not, if you're just starting, you have to show up that way. And and that requires some level of boldness. People say, well, I'm not successful yet. How can I do this or that? You got to feel that way. And you got to know beyond a shadow of a doubt, you got to have the mindset that people cannot resist you. And they won't if you have that mindset. I'm telling you, that's it's so important. I mean, I did things back then. I didn't know I was being bold. I mean, I <laughs> I remember one time knocking on a door. I needed my 10th person for the day. So I see this old house. It looked like something out of a movie in the 20s or something and it had a screen door and had a big hole in the screen door right by the handle and then it had two steps going up to the house so there's no porch so you actually had to open the door and go up the steps so i got the bright idea i'm going to go door to door and recruit for my business so i i go and knock on the door and i'm i'm standing down below the steps so i'm looking right in that hole in the screen and the door opens, and all I see is a great big hairy belly button through that hole. <laughs> I'm looking like that, and I look up, and here's this guy, great big guy, 
uh, overweight, big stomach sticking out. And he said, what do you want? I'm going, I said, how would you like to make more money each month? And he said, well, I might. Come on in. <laughs> and I was, I was afraid not to. So I come in and I sat down and he said, let me get you a beer. I'm going, okay. <laughs> so, could, could you get a shirt too? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. he, he never joined me in business, but, but it was an experience, you know, but you know, I was, I was that way. I was, I was bold. I didn't know. I just, maybe it was desperate. I don't know, but I wouldn't give up on those 10 every day and how I track those 10. We didn't have computers or anything. So I put 10 beans in my pocket every morning, dried beans, not cooked ones. So I'd t- every, t- every time I would talk to a person, I'd flip a bean away. And I had, to, I had to mention my product or my service or my business in a conversation, and I'd flip a bean away. And that's how I tracked it. And I didn't go home until the 10 were gone. Only 3% of speakers, podcasters, and authors make enough money to do it as a full-time career. man, that's bad. I came from the big business world. And if I wanted to scale my speaking career and release courses, I knew I needed more than just case studies and metrics. I actually needed a personal brand. Brand Builders Group is a personal brand strategy firm for thought leaders, experts, and entrepreneurs. And they work with some of the biggest names. They help clarify your message, expand reach, and increase revenue while monetizing your personal brand. I still do their monthly consulting package, but I've also done their workshops, webinars. They're all great. Don't be part of the 97% who can't afford to do the work they love full time. Connect with the same team I hired to help me. Check them out at pivot-me.com backslash partners and get on their schedule for a free call. So I heard you mention bold and I heard you mention confident a few times. Mm-hmm. Jim, what gets in the way of people being bold or confident? That's the next step. <laughs> and that's the ability to, to let go of the past, whether it's a past call you made or, or, or your past period, to be able to, to disconnect and you know, like the woman that, that was abusing herself or like the, you know, different people, they go, they go through things in their life and they just keep carrying it around. So there's power in letting go. What you have to look at is hanging on to this. I mean, let's just say the listeners right now, think of something that's happened in your life that is less than positive as far back as you can go, something that happened. And if I ask a group that, almost everybody gets it instantly. Uh, so I'm sure everybody here has already gotten one. And it's because it's in their minds and in their hearts, and they can tap into it quickly. It's right there. Yeah. And the emotion comes up with it usually. And then I ask, I said, okay, give me give me how, many, how long it's been. And some people go three months, five years, 10 years, 40 years, 30 years. I mean, you get, you get it all. The most I've ever heard is 61 years. But my, my question is, when that comes up, do you like it? Do you like feeling that? Do you like recalling that experience? And the answer is, is always no. Well, can you see any reason to carry that emotion around? Well, no. Do you see any reason it's not painful or stressful to hang on to it? No. If you could, would do you want to let it go? And everybody says yes. Then I get to the next question. Are you willing to let it go? And I'll tell them, you know, don't don't say yes until 
because the next question, you're not going to be able to use this as an excuse for not doing well again. So are you really willing to let it go? And most of the answers are yes. I'd say 99%. And the last question is when? When are you willing to let it go? Because, you know, we, we all have stuff that happened to us. And what we think is if we hang on to this, it'll protect us from it happening again. Like a one woman, she said, I want a loving relationship, but I'm not going to open my heart to anybody until they prove themselves that they're worthy. I'm going, well, good luck with that. Yeah. How do you expect to attract a, re- a loving relationship with a closed heart? You can't. You got to get over it. And they said, well, it's hard to let go. And I said, no, it's not. Just because I'm holding this pen in my hand. And for you, your younger guys, if you're watching this, that's something you write with. <laughs> <laughs> but if I'm holding this pen in my hand, does it mean I have to hold it in my hand for the rest of my life? And the answer is no. You can put it down. You can lay it down. And the same goes with anything that's happened in your life. you got to look at it in, in reality and say, is this helping me get where I want to go or taking me in the opposite direction? Let them choose. And everybody says, no, it's not helping me get where I want to go. So are you willing to let it go now? And I've had people say, well, you know, maybe after lunch or, you know, a little later in the day, let me think about it. Schedule it at 4 p.m. One woman approached me and she said, can you help me stop smoking? I said, yep. And I said, how many times have you tried? She said, I, I don't know. I don't know how many times. Dozens. I said, what, what method? She said, oh, I tried the chewing gum. I tried the patch. I tried this and that. And I said, what are you trying right now? She says, I'm tapering. I said, oh, so you're tapering off of smoking. She said, oh, yeah, I used to smoke two packs a day. I'm down to less than a pack a day. I said, but you're still smoking. I said, first of all, you have to make a decision to be a non-smoker. As soon as you do that, smoking is not an option. So are you willing to do that? So an identity shift. Yeah. And she said, yes. I said, okay, then you're, you're no longer a smoker. And she said, that's it. I said, yep. I said, next time you go to light up, I said, remember that. So we took a break for lunch and I see her outside the lobby of the hotel by a little table out there where she's having lunch and she pulls out a cigarette and she puts it in her mouth and lights it up. And then she looks at it and threw it on the, on the ground and stepped on it. So she came back in and she said, she said, you know, she said, I went out there and had lunch and she got a habit. I pulled the cigarette out and lit it. And she said, you know what? It tastes like crap. And she said, I I couldn't smoke. And that it was that easy for her. Yeah. I'm sure she went through a few times when she craved it or something, but she said, it's so true with, we leave ourselves options and, and the options don't work. You know, if you're going to, you want to lose weight, you got to find out why you're hanging on to all the, the extra. One woman had, she needed to lose 180 pounds. She had been in, I can't remember how many diets that she'd been on, but it was a huge amount. So I, I took a piece of paper and I wrote down on one side, your benefits of being overweight and your reasons, reasons to keep the weight, reasons to not keep it. And I'd ask her back and forth. I said, reason to keep the weight. No, there's no reason. Reason to take it off. Well, I'd feel better. Back and forth. I'd wear a different dress size. I'd look better. I'd do, you know, this and that. 
I filled up three, four pages of a flip chart with reasons to take the weight off. Nothing over here to keep it on. And finally, I, I wouldn't give up. And finally, uh, at, on the fourth page, I said, what's the benefit of keeping the weight on? And she gets a little red in the face and she says, I wouldn't have to have men touching me. I said, oh, why not? She said, well, I've never told this to anybody. She said, I got gang raped by a football team when I was 13. And she said, I never told anybody, not my parents, nobody. And I went home and I started eating and I, and I told myself, I'm going to get fat. So I'm not appealing to any man. Six months time, she lost 180 pounds with no diet. Simply, she let the weight go. Yeah. You see what can happen? I mean, our mind is so powerful that we instruct ourselves what to do every day. And your, and your cells will do whatever you tell them. They'll die for you if you tell yeah. them to. You know, it's, we're powerful human beings. We just don't realize it sometimes. Jim, how did you get there from being in this business that you're going door to door to starting the seminar business with Jim Rohn? To, I think you told me before the, the cameras came on that Tony Robbins was part of the sales team. Yes, he was for about five years. How do you get from doing this kind of business to then leaning so hard into personal development? Is it just, I really like this stuff. The book I threw in the trash was actually really good. I'm going to get it out and teach everybody about it. Like wh where does this transition happen? Again, it, it evolved, I think over the years. Uh, I never, in the beginning, never saw myself as a speaker. In fact, it was my greatest fear. But once I got into it, I would always ask myself every time I would do a talk, whether it was a presentation for one of my salespeople to a group like a real estate board or something like that, I would always leave afterwards and sit for a moment and say, how did I do it? How could I have done it better? And I loved reading, but I was slow and, and didn't comprehend very well. And I kept thinking about and hearing about speed reading. So at one of our events, there's a group in the back of the room after everybody else left sitting at a table. I go back, say, how are you guys doing? And it was like four four guys sitting there. They said, well, I said, what do you do? And uh, they said, well, we market him. I said, well, who, who are, who's he? And he said, he's the fastest reader in the world. Uh, he said, it's, he's in the Guinness Book of World Records. It's the fastest reader in the world. I said, well, I need to get to know you. He said, well, I do classes on speed reading. I said, oh, so I, I signed up and, and he did a 10 lesson class and I went to four lessons because I'm not a good student, but I went to four lessons. And at, at the end of four lessons, I was reading at 28,000 words a minute with 90, about 98 to 99% comprehension. So I was getting it all. And I, I could read a normal book size, you know, 300 page book in probably 10 minutes and get it. Whoa. I didn't read novels or anything like that. These were self-help books. Uh, I read everything. I went through 4,000, over 4,000 books. And, and I did personal development and, and psychology and religion and spirituality and marketing. And I mean, you name it, I went through it uh, to the point where I could hardly even find a book I hadn't read in the bookstore at the time in my genre. And it's amazing. So that's how, that's what got me started. Then I went through a transition in my life about 37 years ago. I kept thinking, why do people not do what they say they're going to do? They come to my events. They're excited about it. A few of them do it, but the rest of them, they need they need to go to another event. They just don't apply what they what they do or what they say they're going to do. And it bothered me, really bothered me. So I went through a transition where I was 
I'd always thought, you know, I'm teaching people how to be successful and happy. Well, here I am at that time, I'm living in Sedona, Arizona. I'm financially successful. I thought I was happy, but my now ex-wife and, and two children at the time lived in another part of the country. And I'm thinking, that's not happiness. That's not right. And the more I thought about it, the more I, I thought, I can't do this anymore. I can't teach people this because I'm not really successful. I mean, financially, but I'm not really happy. And, and to me, if, if you're not happy, you're not successful. So I booked a ticket to Hawaii and stayed over in the North Shore of Kauai for two weeks. I didn't take a book. I didn't take a journal. I didn't take anything, not a pen, paper, nothing. And all I did was hang out and I hiked the Nepali coast, 11 mile hike. And I spent three days on the beach and I only had two bottles of water and a couple of power bars. And I ate that the first day and drank it the first day. So I'm out of water. So I'm drinking out of a waterfall. And I spent three days there sleeping on a towel. And it was like new information got downloaded somehow. <laughs> I don't know. It was a pristine environment. Maybe it was fasting. I don't, I don't know. But I started to see that the problem is not speeding people up and motivating them. The problem is to slow them down and get them to take a look inside. Jim, let me ask you this as we near we wrap up our time together. If you could tell the world one thing, what would it be? I would say you know, my favorite quote that I wrote was, if you do what you do with love, you'll, have, you'll eventually have only what you love in your life. But I'll give you a success principle that I think is very simple, and I try to keep things simple. Once you've decided what it is that you want in your life, every action you take from that point forward is going to move you toward that or away from it. Success in anything is that simple. We don't live in a gray world. We live in a black and white world. It's either taking you toward it or it's not. So to me, everything moves you in the direction you want to go. And I don't. I tell people, I don't want you to believe me when I say to let go of something and what it'll do for you. I want you to try it because it will work the very first time you do it. You just cut the tie and maybe it'll pop up again, maybe not. I mean, I've had people where they've, they've gone through stuff and, and they, they're done with it in 30 minutes. Um, and others, it might take a little longer because it pops up again. But if you realize that, you know, life is like you go through a path in the field and you get accustomed to going through that path. It's all beaten down. You know it. You know every stick and stone in that path to get you over to your destination. But you keep looking over here and you go, well, that's shorter. and it's a little scary, though, because it's high grass and there could be some snakes in it or something and rocks that I've stumbled over. But if you take that path and you continue taking that path and you quit taking this one that you're accustomed to, that's not taking you really where you want to go, then that's going to wither away from lack of attention. That's the benefit of, of letting go and starting something new. And when you start something new, you're going to be confronted with discomfort. You just will. Yeah. For sure. Every new life level, every new income level requires a different you. For sure. And if you're not willing to endure that pain, then you're probably not going to get much further than where you are in that area of your life. Unfortunately, a lot of people just say, well, give me a bag of chips and a TV remote and I'll complacently live out my life and complain about what I don't have. But what a way to live. 
I mean, to me, it's okay if that's what you like, but uh, it's not what I like. <laughs> There's another way to do it. Yeah. Exactly. Jim, where is the best place for people to connect with you? If they want to hear more about the work you've done, the books that you've written, where's the best place to connect? Well, um, my website is jimbritt.com. And I've also created a new program that is called Cracking the Rich Code. And it's an online four-month coaching program. And you, it, it's designed to change one's relationship toward money. Because that's the problem. People don't relate to money. That's why they don't have a lot of it. So it helped to change. And it's daily input, videos, audios, certain things that you go through every morning to get your day started. And it's designed to reprogram your mind. And it's not that hard to do if you give it time. And that's what this is designed to do. Rings of truth. We'll add that in the show notes for Pivot Me. Jim, thank you so much for your information, your stories that are just so powerful, and also the insight about changing your identity, changing the narrative, ultimately moving you out of your own way so you can live a more successful life. We don't want the lives with the the bag of chips and the TV remote, to use your phrase. We want something more and we're capable of so much more. So thank you for giving us information to get us there. My pleasure. And thank you, April. Thanks, Jim. All right, let's do some key takeaways from that interview. I loved how he finally had it broken down for him after seeing, what was it, 3,600 prospects? He finally had it broken down to him how to know if you have a viable prospect in front of you. So let's go over that. So number one was they have a pain or a problem. And that can be anything. It can be weight loss, lack of money, need for convenient food. It doesn't matter what the pain or problem is, but it does need to be significant enough for them to take action. Number two, do they want to solve it? Lots of us have pains and problems. We just want to complain about it. We don't want to solve it. So to know if you have a viable prospect, are they motivated to solve it? Do they care enough? Are they willing to do the work to solve it? Hopefully the answer is yes. Let's move on to the third one, which is can I solve it for them? Is the problem there? Is it big enough? Are they going to take action? And can I solve it for them? So he needed to find these three things before he should be pitching his sales. This is basic sales, guys, but but it's easy to forget because if any of these pieces are missing, your sales process will have a big problem. Let's get recap on the traits he noticed when he sat down and interviewed self-made millionaires over 200 million. Okay, so here's some of the Tracy notes. Number one was desire, desire to become more. Number two was decision-making. I loved when he said the decision shouldn't allow for anything less. Number three, take action. Don't overanalyze. We've been talking a lot about that recently in Pivot Me. Number four, be bold. Put yourself out there. Confidence was key. It was important to be this key person of influence. And I loved when he said the phrase, be convinced that people cannot resist you. That's powerful. And towards the end, Jim walked us through how to let something go, asking whether it was a belief. He gave some examples of people that he had coached and, and had issues around money or around weight loss. And regardless of the problem, he was really just asking the question, is this still serving us? It's not if it's true or not. That was less important. It was the narrative that they were choosing to believe. So asking this thing we might need to let go, does it still serve us? Do we want to believe that narrative or do we need to shift into a different gear, the letting letting it go gear? When he asked, are you willing to let it go? And then he followed up with, well, then when? It kind of gave me pause too. I started thinking, hmm, what am I holding on to? What narrative am I believing that doesn't serve me? And when am I willing to let it go? 
I hope you enjoyed the interview today and we'll see you next week. Thank you so much for dialing in today. And don't forget, make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And if you love what you hear, give us a five-star review. It means the world to us. Hit me up on Instagram at the April Garcia or check us out online at pivot-me.com. This is all made possible with the support of you listeners, the numerous contributors and our clients. Our music and production is by the amazing Rockwood Audio. Join me next time for more tips on how to hack success. And until then, make it a great day. Thanks, guys. You guys are amazing.